Um, I've said this before, and I know I'm not alone in this, but I, I like to be in control of my life. Um, I like my life a certain way, and I want to have the control to make my life be that way. Uh, and I've grown a lot. Notice I said I like to be in control, not I have to be in control. Um, there have been times in my life where I think I felt like I had to be in control. Uh, when I was a kid, I was definitely that way. Uh, very much wanted to be the boss because I was kind of a, a late arrival to my family. I'm, I'm 10, 11 years younger than my siblings. Um, so I got to be like both the baby of the family and an only child. And so I got to be like the worst of both of those mixed together sometimes. Um, and so I really wanted to be in control uh, all the time. My mom, she always babysat other kids. And so there was always people to play with. And um, one of the things I was super into as a kid was Batman. From the second, like the 1989 Batman came out, I mean, for years upon years, like the next 35 years, I was all in on Batman. And and that's a joke. Um, and um, I had Batman toys and play sets. Um, I had various Batman costumes kind of put together from different play sets and masks and random winter gloves that were dark enough and all that stuff, right? Um, and if I could have talked my parents into letting me turn our creepy basement into a bat cave, you better believe I would have done that as well. Um, and I, so I was always wanting to play Batman with the other babysitting kids that were there. Um, but if we were going to play, I was 100% going to be Batman. That's who I was. I was going to be Batman. Anybody else, they could be Robin, they could be Batboy, they could be Batgirl, Batwoman, Bat whatever, but I was the one and only Batman if we were going to play. And since, um, you know, we were at my house with my toys, I would say, well, if I'm not Batman, then I'm not playing, and you're not playing with my stuff. And that, so I, I was very much a pain in that respect because I just wanted to be in charge. And it, even when you're talking about a kid, I was probably like five, six, seven, eight, you know, something like that at this time. Um, and even when you're talking about a kid, that sounds very childish and immature. Um, but weirdly enough, um, this same kind of childishness shows up in adult lives all the time. Um, it's amazing all of the ways, both obvious and subtle, that we will try to exercise control over our lives and the lives of the people around us. Um, some people try to control um, what other people think of them through carefully curated social media posts. A, a very carefully shaped image is put out on social media. I mean, every Christmas is perfect. Everybody's got their matching jammies on. What the picture doesn't tell you is the giant argument you had to, and fight to get your kids into those jammies and with your spouse who didn't want the jammies to begin with, and you're like, you're wearing these jammies, you know, and that, all, that stuff all gets cut out, right? Because you want to control, and everyone sees this picture, and, they, and they're going to think, what a nice, loving, peaceful home you must have, because we want to control even what others think. Uh, some people try to be in control by being disagreeable. Uh, you can watch one person take a whole room of people hostage when you're trying to agree what to order for dinner. You want that? No, I don't want that. I don't want that. No, that doesn't sound good. I had that yesterday. And what's really going on is they're saying, I am the dinner gatekeeper. And if you want to eat food at all, if you want to ease your grumbling stomach, you have to appease me first. Um, some people micromanage 
their life and their family's life, you know, because they don't just want to make sure their life goes the way they want it to go. They, they want control so much, they want to control the direction everyone in their family's life is going to go, so everybody's life moves the direction they think it should go. And so whether it's those kinds of control tactics, or lying, or being inflexible, or being passive-aggressive, um, even if you think you're a pretty chill person, my guess is there are certain places in your life where you have an iron grip on what happens. And today, as we return to the Christmas story, and I know, yeah, Christmas is over um, for most of us. Anybody still got a Christmas celebrations to be had? Yeah, just the blisses, I guess. We, we were supposed to go to my folks today, but my mom ended up sick, so we're um, pushing that one back. But yeah, I know. So, you know, depending on when that happens, it might be February. We might just do Christmas all the way till February. We're in, you're, I can hold you hostage for Christmas uh, for what I want to do. But anyway. Um, As we return to the Christmas story, what's interesting is we're going to be given today a comparison between two paths, a comparison between two different ways that we can react to encountering Jesus in our life. Um, And they are two very distinct, very separate paths, and you're going to assume you're on one, but my guess is you're not on the path you think that you are on. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. As um, I talked about several weeks ago, we are on a journey through the book of Matthew that's going to take us through 2024. Um, we won't do Matthew every single Sunday, but most of them we're going to just work our way through the story of Jesus' life and understand uh, who he wants us to be. What better way to learn how to follow him than to actually see where he went, what he did, how he loved, how he forgave. Uh, what better way to look and learn how to follow in his footsteps. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today, start in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So right in the very first verse, Matthew shows us the two folks or two groups that are being compared. One, listed first, is a king named Herod, and the second is a group called the wise men. Um, And although Herod is mentioned first, uh, the wise men are the ones who really get the ball rolling on the story. They've traveled who knows how far um, because they witnessed some astronomical phenomenon that they have interpreted to mean that the promised, predicted, prophesied king of the Jews has been born. And what's really weird about this story and these wise men is you don't know nearly as much about the wise men as you think you know about the wise men. Okay, Uh, For instance, how many were there? Yeah, it doesn't say. Some of you, I mean, but three. I always heard it was three. Anybody else, like, like for a long time just assumed it was three? Did it say three? The reason we say three is because, as we'll see at the end of the story, they bought, brought three gifts. And so well, one wise men per gift, I guess. But we had Christmas with some family yesterday, and we gave my niece Callie two presents. That doesn't mean there's only two blisses in our house. There's five of us. We just happen to bring two gifts for her. That's how that works. Um, what exactly is a wise man? Like a really like generic terminology. Like, is it a job title? Do the, are they priestly? Are they royal? Where are they? All that stuff. Um, what were their names? That's not given either. What's interesting though is there are 
church traditions in our world where you can find answers to all of those questions. Um, depending on your church background, um, some again, there's a huge assumption there were three wise men because there were three gifts. Um, some traditions say that the wise men were actually three different kings from three different nations. We even sing a song about it. We three kings from our... But it doesn't say that they're kings necessarily. Uh, some traditions even claim that their names are Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. But none of them in the story are named. Um, all we get is actually one word. We, it's translated in English as two words, wise men. But it's one word in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in. The word magoi or magi. Okay, we've heard the word, maybe you've heard the word magi before. Um, and in the ancient world, a magi was it could mean a lot of different things. It could mean magician or sorcerer. It could mean um, just somebody who was really wise and had um, certain was seen as having certain mystical abilities or powers. Um, in the nation of Persia, um, it was like a, a priestly title for the under the court, the Persian court, um, and they were just people that had supernatural knowledge. That's what they were seen as. Um, but we don't really even know who they were necessarily or where they came from. All we know is that whatever they came or wherever they came from, they came to worship Jesus. That was the goal of them. They, they showed up after he was born, um, which means they probably didn't visit him in the manger. In fact, it says later in the story, they came to a house. So at some point, Mary and Joseph upgraded their digs from barn, from kid in a feeding trough to something a little bit nicer. Somebody had a little pity on the, the newborn and then uh, the new mom and dad. And, and it's funny, though, that we have all this extra fluff around that we just kind of have assumed because the stories take on a life of their own. And that's not really surprising. Kind of, that's just kind of how life works and how stories work. Certain things that we think are true aren't really true. Um, for instance, how many of you have heard that humans only use 10% of their brain? Remember that? That's not true. Like, there's been movies based on that premise. You know, there's one where you take a pill and it unlocks your whole brain, and then you become supercharged. Um, there's, uh, how many of you have heard that if you shave hair, it grows back thicker? That's not true. Um, I shave my head all the time. Shaving, praying, moisturizing, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Um, how about this one? How many of you have heard that cracking your knuckles will cause arthritis? There's no studies that find any correlation between cracking your knuckles and, and by, I've done it so much, I think I'd, my hands would be curled in on themselves if that one were true. Um, so these kinds of, that's just kind of how stories work. They kind of can take on a life of their own. But when we look at scripture, we know very little about these wise men. We just know that they were a group of men who had some understanding that the king of the Jews had been born, and their automatic instinctual um, reaction was to come and worship him. They bow before this king, despite the fact that this king wasn't even potty trained. And um, yeah, right? You don't think about that kind of stuff. Um, they come to offer him extravagant gifts, and they lay themselves flat on the ground. The word worship in the ancient world is a Greek word, proskuneo, which meant to prostrate yourself flat on the ground. It was a very humbling, submissive stature, posture. And so they gave to the king, and they bowed down as a sign of his authority and their surrender to this king. 
And so they show us the first path of reacting to Jesus, surrender to him as our king. But the other path is shown to us as the wise men are compared against the king of the day, a guy named Herod. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Let's keep reading. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The reason was, um, when power moved from one person to another, there was always collateral damage in the ancient world. Usually swords were brought out and people got hurt. So they didn't want to hear that. Um, And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? They told him, sorry, I skipped, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and they quote the book of Micah, the Old Testament prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent, to them, or he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. So Herod learns that a baby has been born that is called King of the Jews, and he freaked out. And the reason he freaked out is because he was King of the Jews at that point in time. He was the king over the area of Israel. Um, He had gone and schmoozed the emperor of Rome and been given this rule over this area, and... um, he, this, this news meant that somebody was after his throne. Somebody was after his crown. Now, unlike the Magi, where we really don't get a lot of information, the scriptures also don't give us a lot of information about Herod, but there's a lot of other writings in history about Herod that we still have. Um, and it's funny because you can tell that history is always written by people who are a little biased because all the accounts we have of Herod are either people who talk about how great he is or how awful he is. There's nobody that's like, he's all right. Like, it's all, it's all the extremes, okay? And what we can kind of learn about Herod was that if there was anything that defined him, it was that he was paranoid that somebody was after his rule. He was paranoid that somebody was going to take his command from him. Um, and he killed just about anybody that ever got close to threatening his seat on the throne. Um, he killed his own wife that he claimed to love. There's even stories of him like absentmindedly telling servants to bring his wife after he'd killed her just because supposedly he cared about her, but his paranoia was too great. Um, He killed his two sons that he had with that woman because as they got older, they hated him for killing their mother, and they let it be known that they were not happy about it and that they wanted revenge, and so he killed them too. Um, Anybody that disagreed with him or threatened him in some way. He would always find some scheme, some lie, some way to trump up some charges on them to have them executed, or sometimes they just died under mysterious circumstances. He one time had somebody over, I want to say it was like a cousin or his wife's cousin over to his, his, one of his mansions, and he got into the pool when it was cold. He's like, you should get into it. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. And Herod was like, no, you really need to get in the pool. And so the guy's like, fine. Get in the pool. And when he did, Herod had a bunch of other servants just jump in on the guy and hold him underwater. And then, like, oh, he drowned in the pool. And and Herod's like, shame. And there was all this kind of stuff surrounding Herod. So he was a pretty nasty guy who would lie and trick and scheme 
and threaten anybody who wanted to take his rule. And somebody says, hey, guess what? Herod, there's a new king. And he's like, whoa. And so he does what he does, and he starts plotting and scheming. And so he first off brings in the religious leaders, and he's like, okay, what can you tell me? Where is this baby going to be born? And they say Bethlehem. And so then he brings the wise men back in, and he's like, okay, how long did this star show up? About how old is this kid going to be? And so he's doing all this, trying to learn what he can learn, not so that he can worship the baby Jesus, but so that he can try to get him out of the way. He pretends to be friendly. He pretends to be nice. Um, and he says, wise men, you go, you go find him, and when you find him, come and let me know so that I can definitely not go and kill him. Let me know so I can definitely go and worship this baby. I'm on your team, guys, and they kind of buy it. And so the story keeps going in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, not the, not the barn, uh, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. <clears throat> so the well-meaning... Magi, they get bamboozled by Herod. He lies and says he's on their team. Go find the baby. And they say, good job. Sounds good. Glad we have the support. Let's go find the kid. And they follow the star. Um, the language Matthew uses, we don't catch it because we don't, our lives aren't saturated in the Old Testament the way the people were in the first century. But that language that he uses is reminiscent of the language that was used in the Old Testament when God led the people of Israel through the wilderness through a, a tower of fire or a tower of cloud. Um, it's that same language where it moved and then it rested in certain places. Matthew wants us to see that this isn't some random astrological event or astronomical event. It's God's guiding hand. It's God leading these wise men. Um, because, again, anybody who read this in the first century would have known, Herod's a bad dude. He kills everybody, and they just told him someone's after his throne. He's going to try to kill the baby. Everybody would have probably made that connection really quickly. And so we get a bad guy introduced into the story, and almost immediately Matthew's going to say, but don't worry about it. God is leading. God is guiding. God has got things under control. And so even though there's this powerful bad guy, everybody's okay. And so they come to Jesus, and they were so excited. And it's almost like Matthew got so excited, he forgot all the words. Because he says that they were excited. They felt, hey, Let me go back to it. Let's see. Where does he say? Mm -hmm. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced with the joy that they rejoiced with. Like it's like it's like like he needed a thesaurus because he was they were so excited. If you've ever had one of those moments where you're kind of speechless, right? It's almost like he's saying they were happy with a happiness that was so happy. Like it just kind of uh, it was great. They were so excited. Um, they were so thrilled to come and see this child that their response was so overwhelming. They just felt joy beyond joy to have come and met this child. Get it. Oh, but oh, I went too far. Don't, don't. Okay. So they fell on their faces, an act of complete submission, complete worship. 
They gave him gifts that reflected how important he was, his status. Um, they traveled, who knows, that maybe thousands of miles to do this. Um, and they recognized that on some level, Jesus was to be worshipped. He was to be surrendered to. Even at that moment, he was a baby. They understood the proper attitude when approaching the king of all kings was surrender. And that is completely opposite to Herod's response to this new king. Herod, rather than bowing down and worshiping, starts plotting and scheming. Herod was working on a plan to kill just one more person who he thought was after his throne. And he wanted to hold on to that control a little bit longer. And what's really sad is Herod was at the tail end of his life. Like, he would be dead within a couple of years. He had lived most of his years on earth, and he had lived through most of his reign on earth. And yet, even though he was only going to maybe lose out on a little bit of time as king, he wasn't willing to let go of that authority. He was not willing to let go of that control. And when you read this story, what's interesting is who you kind of relate yourself to. I have found that when you read stories in Scripture, there are two questions that's really helpful for you to ask. First question is, is there a bad guy in this story? Okay, sometimes, I mean, and maybe they're not a bad guy in the sense of, like, this guy who's, like, actively trying to go kill babies. That's a bad guy. Sometimes it's just the person that's, like, they're not, they're, they're clearly being set up as the bad example, like the person you don't want to be like. Maybe it's just that kind of thing. But is there a bad guy in the story? That's the first question. Figure out who that is. And then secondly, ask this question, how am I like them? Because you do what I do. Anytime you read a story, a book, anytime you watch a TV show or a movie, you relate yourself to the good guy. You think, I'm the good guy, I'm the hero, because we all think we're the good guy. We all think we're the noble knight in shining armor, the white hat wearing cowboy from the old westerns. And when I read the Bible, I can identify the people that are the good examples, and if it's the New Testament and you're looking at the Gospels especially, you see Jesus and you're like, oh yeah, Jesus is a good guy, I want to be like Jesus. And yes, I do want to be like the good people in the Bible, but if I uh, am honest... I've learned way more from paying attention to how I'm like the bad guys that are mentioned. I often relate way more to them. And so, I've learned to ask, how am I like the bad guys in the story? Where am I doing what they have done? Where, where am I making the same mistakes that they have made? Where am I falling in through the same sins and temptations that they have fallen through? And my sin is the same as Herod's sin. I want control. I want my life to be my way. And the thing is, we call Jesus our Lord and Savior. Those two words get put together a lot, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. But we're way more okay with a Savior than a Lord. Because with a Savior, we want um, the eternity and perfection part. We want the knowing our afterlife is secure part. We want the knowing that this broken existence with all of its sin and muck is temporary and that one day we get perfection. We're all okay with that stuff, and so therefore we're all okay with the Savior. But very few of us actually want a Lord, a Lord, a King who rules over our life, someone who has a higher level of authority over how you live than you do. And having a Lord means that someone has more authority in your life to make your daily decisions and to tell you how you should live and think and talk and act than even you do. 
And so having a Lord, be, having Jesus be our king, means that we must say yes to things that sometimes we don't want to do and say no to some things that we really want to do. And so as I read this story, I have to ask, where am I holding on to control in my life, refusing to let Jesus be Lord? Where are the areas of my life where I'm refusing to bow down and surrender and say, you be the king? Um, and you have those areas too. Sometimes it's money. Um, I want to spend my money on things um, that will satisfy whatever desires and cravings I have at the moment. I mean, that's, that's fun to do that. Um, and sometimes, you know, still you, you pray like, you know, God, if you ever wanted to let me win the lottery, even though I don't play, God, if you want to somehow let me win the lottery, um, I'll do real good things with it. But the, the, the reality is, like, I would probably give a certain amount away, but I would really just indulge myself if I had that kind of money. And, you know, I want clothes that make me feel better. I want food that I don't have to prepare. I want gadgets and, and gizmos that distract and entertain me. Um, I don't want to be generous and give it away because that's less for me to do what I want to with. I don't want to be wise and save it because that's boring. I want to spend it and enjoy it and live my life and, and have fun with every moment of every day. Um, and I tell myself, it's my money. I deserve to spend it how I want. Maybe that thought's run through your head a time or two. But not if you have a Lord of your life. You don't have the automatic authority to spend that money, especially one who bought you at a price the way Jesus bought us. Um, sometimes the thing we hold on to is our schedules and how we spend our time. Uh, we have a picture of what we want our lives to look like, and so we think, I need to fill my life with these kinds of events, with these kinds of activities, um, what I, things I want to do, things we think our kids should do. Or I think there's this pressure and fear that a lot of parents have that, you know, if we tell our kids no or don't give them every experience under the sun, then we're bad parents who have failed them. And so out of just fear, we fill their lives with every activity because that way they have all the things to choose from in life and whatever it might be. And so we have endless opportunities and activities and vacations and experiences that our culture offers us. And we think, I have to enjoy every single one. And we so overcommit ourselves that we have very little time and room for God in our life, for allowing him to rule and reign and guide and, and use us for his glorious purposes. Um, one unmeasurable thing I've noticed that we hold on to is our anger. I want to be, some, sometimes we just want to be angry. There's certain people who have hurt us, or maybe it's sometimes it's certain, certain groups of people that we just think are categorically, categorically wrong about something, and so we want to look at them as wrong, and we want to kind of cross our arms and be like, those people, or that guy hurt me, or that lady when she, she said stuff about me, and, and we want to hold on to that. And because our culture says, yeah, you hold on to that. You take that grudge to your grave. That's what our culture kind of tells us to do. You get revenge if you can, but you definitely hold that grudge until you're dead. And, and we, we, we just think that's okay, and we come to church, and then we hold on to this anger and this bitterness as if we don't have a God whose kind of main thing is forgiving people, forgiving us, and calling us to do the same. We look at the people and we hold on to the anger and we say, we don't, they don't deserve my forgiveness. And Jesus looks right back at us and says, you didn't deserve my forgiveness. And we're like, oh, like, you ever had that realization where like, you didn't want to forgive somebody and then someone says something all gospel-y and Jesus-y and you're like, fine, I get it. 
and you're still like, I know what I need to do. I just don't want to do it. Like you're like a kid. I told you to clean your room. Fine. You know, it's like, like we're going to get grounded if we like, we kind of get to that weird, immature spot where God's like, come on, come on. You know the path I'm on and we don't want to follow because we want to have control. We want to hold on to that anger and that, and that, uh, whatever, that debt that they owe us for as long as we can. And I, I just have to be honest that I am way more like Herod than I am the wise men. Um, I, I want to be like a magi who just kind of shows up at the, um, out of nowhere and shows their best foot, puts their best foot forward and just lays down Jesus and offers lavish gifts of gold. Um, but most days I just wake up and I don't even consider how Jesus should guide my life and my morning and my attitude towards my family when we're all hustling to get out the door. Um, I just kind of start off my day assuming I'm the boss, I'm in control, and I know I'm not the only one. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, where do I need to give Jesus more control of my life? Where are the areas that we are holding back, the areas that we just say, no, this is my reign, Jesus, and you can't have my crown just yet. This is where I am in charge. In what areas do you, in your life do you need to acknowledge Jesus is the authority, he is the king, he is the Lord, and bow down and take whatever it is you're holding on to and say, no, this is yours first, and I want to use it to your will. Because as the Magi knew, Jesus is the king, and the only way to respond is to open arms, fall on your face, and give him everything and surrender. He deserves nothing less than every ounce of our lives. He deserves nothing less than giving him every bit of who we are. But it is hard to do that, and most of us are going to spend a lifetime figuring out how to do it. But as we learn, and as we submit, as we surrender, and even as we fail to do so sometimes, and it bites us, what we're going to learn is that Jesus' way forward is always better. That when we hold on to stuff, we waste it. And when we give it to him, it becomes something so much more fruitful and beautiful than we could have ever made it on our own. And by following him with an openness and with surrender, what we will discover is a, the most joyful joy that you've ever joyed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of the wise men, the magi, and Herod. Um, I pray that we would not just assume that we're the good guys and that Herod's the bad guy that we have nothing in common with. Um, because unfortunately, as we're honest with ourselves, we sometimes have more in common with the bad examples than the good ones. Um, so help us to acknowledge where we are and to strive towards something better. Help us to understand that you are not just our Savior, but our Lord and that your kingship, your rule in our life means that we surrender our lives to you, that you are in charge of every aspect of our being, and that we should live lives um, to follow in the likeness of Jesus so that we can honor you with forgiveness and grace and mercy, where we can um, enter into moments where justice is needed and we can fight for justice, where we can lay down our lives and serve people who need to be served, where we can give away our lives the way Jesus gave away his life for us. And by giving up control of our lives, Father, you will do something more beautiful with our time and our days on earth than we could do with them ourselves. We'll waste them on a couch. We'll waste them in selfishness. But you will do something beautiful and, and give us lives of purpose and meaning for uh, your glory and for the good of others. So I pray that as we wrap up this year and as we embark in a new one, 
um, we would do so trying to give you more control, trying to give you the lead in 2024. So help us, Father, as we lay down our lives. Um, help us to at least take steps in that direction. It's a hard thing to do when we have held so tightly to the various aspects of our life. But help us to pry our hands loose and to give you what is rightfully yours, our everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.